Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Sarah Van Gelder. Sarah Van Gelder is co-founder and executive director of the wonderful Yes! magazine. She leads the framing and development of each issue of Yes! and writes a column introducing each issue. She blogs at Yes! and also at the Huffington Post, writes articles and does interviews for Yes! magazine, and speaks on leading-edge innovations that show that another world is not only possible, it is being created. Uh, which is also a theme of her new book, which we will be talking about. It is called The Revolution Where You Live, Stories from a 12,000-Mile Journey Through a New America. Sarah Van Gelder, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much for having me, David. Uh, Thanks for coming on. Thanks for writing this book. Uh, In the introduction, you say that you were asking three questions when you headed out on a journey around the United States in a little pickup truck camper. Uh, Is anti-racism work best done in communities? Is local activism the best way to stop fossil fuel extraction and transition to sustainability? And can we build a new economy rooted in communities. So, so is local activism the way to go? Uh, what did you expect to find, and what did you find? Well, I hope to find that people were doing things that I hadn't heard of yet so that I could expand my sense of, of what possibilities were out there. I, uh, I took this trip after editing Yes! Magazine for 20 years, nearly 20 years, So, I, I, and, and frankly being somewhat discouraged because even though I think we have found some really amazing solutions over the course of those 20 years, still some of the things that we care about the most, the things that you listed there, uh, still those continue to be deeply problematic and in some cases are getting worse. So I was looking to see, you know, are there solutions that we haven't found yet? Can we, um, can we, can we still find reasons to hope that we're going to be able to take on this climate crisis and take on the enormous inequality and poverty that we see in our communities and take on racism? And what I found, yeah, I found that people are engaged in doing all of those things. I especially chose to travel to parts of the country that don't normally get covered, that are more on the margins of society, that are feeling in many ways left out of what's happening in the main power centers. And I thought maybe because those areas of the country are not as rewarded for buying into the power structure. Maybe they're more free to be more original. Maybe I can find more innovations there. And I did find some great innovations there. I I feel like it's still slower than it needs to be, and I think the frustration people are feeling came out in the election of Donald Trump. But I I did find everywhere I went, I found people doing extraordinary work. Well, and there are a lot of examples in the book. What uh, what are some examples you can share of activism you found in particular places that you think might be a model or inspiration for other other places around the the country or the world? Well, there were so many. But one of one of my favorite stories is out of Montana, where a coalition of ranchers and Native Americans and environmentalists were able to stop a giant coal mine from going in in southeast Montana. This coal mine would have brought out 1.2 billion tons of coal, shipped it across the state into my state of Washington, and then shipped it overseas to Asia, where people are getting sick from all the, the coal fumes. So it was, a, it was a lose-lose proposition all the way from start to finish. Everybody would have been sickened, including our climate, would have been further sickened by 
by this uh, really ill-advised plan. Um, and for years, the ranchers and the native people have been working together to try to stop it. And I went out there and talked to the people who are in the midst of, of that effort and, and learned after I returned that their efforts had been successful, but they had, in fact, stopped that, that giant mine from going in. And, and weren't related efforts in your state of Washington state successful just recently since the book came out in, in stopping, what, the, the shipping uh, facility itself? That's right. There was a giant coal terminal planned for the land of the Lummi tribe north of Seattle. The, uh, the Lummi tribe was absolutely adamant against allowing that to go through. It's, it would affect their fisheries. It would affect sacred lands. They actually, there's a wonderful image of them on the beach burning a giant check that was coming from the, the coal company to convince them to go along with this plan. And, and on it was stamped non-negotiable. And it, there's a great image of, of it being on fire as they, as they make clear that they're not going to allow even though they're a fairly poor tribe, they're not going to trade money for what is priceless, which is their way of life and the fisheries that they depend on. So they were they were fighting it, too. And when I was there in Montana, some of the carvers from the Lummi tribe actually had brought a totem pole as a gift to the people in the Northern Cheyenne tribe. And there was this extraordinary ceremony that included ranchers, included environmentalists and Native people, and all of the people who spoke were talking about the sacredness of the land and the water and the responsibility that people who live there today have to pass it along intact to future generations. So it sounds like something of a broad coalition was built. Uh, what did they do to, to achieve this success? It, it, you know, it was years of work. It was things as mundane as reading long environmental documents and commenting on environmental impact statements and going to Helena, Montana to testify in front of the legislature, going to Washington, D.C. to testify. I didn't track all of that in my, on my road trip. I, I just arrived during that particular moment to see what was happening in that collaboration that I think was, was unexpected between these different groups. You know, some of the ranchers, you know, they said, you know, I, I voted for George W. Bush. I'm a Republican. And, you know, so it, it, there, this was not the, the ideologically driven debate that we hear so much of in the national scale. This was a group of people who had a deep commitment to the place where they live and that sense of responsibility to pass it along intact to future generations. <laughs> it's, it's a familiar story to me because here in Virginia there's a, a struggle against a proposed fossil fuel pipeline uh, to be built and you have people who uh, vote for the worst possible political candidates and advocate the worst possible ideologies that are in favor in general of uh, fossil fuel consumption as much as possible, deny the existence of climate change and so forth, but adamantly oppose uh, putting a pipeline through their own backyards. Um, and I, I support them in that, of course. Um, but is that, uh, is that enough? Uh, and is that uh, more important than uh, getting to better positions nationally, uh, given, the, given the huge impact of national policy? Well, we can talk about what we would like, and we can talk about what, what's actually happening on the ground. And my, my aim with my book was to look at what's actually happening on the ground that we can build on. 
And my sense was that if we take fossil fuel extraction as an issue one community at a time, we actually have a lot more power than we realize. And once we start doing that community by community, pretty soon our members of Congress and uh, members of the Senate, they start to see that that's where their constituents are at. And we start to be able to build a movement based on that kind of grassroots, that grassroots commitment, which is, which is a really different proposition than I think we've, we've thought we could build power by having some really great nonprofit organizations filled with experts, and we, we write them a check, and we click on the petitions. And, we, you know, I think a lot of us sort of hoped that that would be the way we would get things done, and, and they would advocate for really smart policies, and, and the people in Congress would agree with them because they were such great policies. And we've actually not seen a lot of success that way. So uh, I agree that we definitely need, we need national and international policies on climate change for sure. And my question is, where do we actually get the power to get the changes we need? And I found that, that we've been underestimating how much we can do with the power we have where we live. Yeah, that's very well said. We are speaking with Sarah Van Gelder, whose book is called The Revolution Where You Live, Stories from a 12,000-Mile Journey Through a New America. Um, I I was uh, particularly interested, Sarah, in a couple of stories you had in the book from uh, nearby where I am that I didn't know that much about. One of them I knew uh, somewhat. But you you went to Greensboro, and and there was a struggle not over energy policy, but over history. Uh, And and in Harrisonburg, Virginia, there was uh, an expansion of restorative justice uh, through the community. Can you can you talk a little bit about what you learned there? Sure. Um, so Greensboro, of course, has a long history. It's where the one of the original lunch counter sit-ins took place, and I visited the museum that has now been formed out of the, the old Woolworth uh, building where that sit-in took place. And uh, a more recent part of their history is that there was a demonstration for workers' rights by a a leftist group, and I think it was made up mainly of people of color. And uh, a group of neo-Nazis and Klan members, this is 1979, showed up at this demonstration and shot a bunch of people. So uh, six or seven people were killed. I don't remember the exact number. It's in the book. And uh, there were other people injured. And so this was just a a horrifying, traumatic event in the life of this community. And what I was looking at when I was there was, what have they done with that since then? How have they processed that that really deeply traumatic event? And what they decided to do is to take a page from South Africa and start a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And they... Partly what they wanted to do is just establish what, what actually happened on that day, because there had been all these different ideas of, oh, maybe it was a shootout, or maybe it was, you know, maybe it was deserved in some way. And they just, they just felt like, you know, they needed to establish the facts on the ground. So, so they did a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They took testimony from all sorts of people, eyewitnesses, um, not, with the, not with the blessing of the city Council. They did it on their own as a, as a community group. They would have loved to have the city's endorsement, but they ended up doing it on their own. And they put out a report that that basically laid out the facts on the ground. And, you know, the, there's still controversy about that. There was controversy when they wanted to do it because a lot of people said, that's too painful, we don't even want to go there again. And after they put out the report, there was still controversy. But one thing that people agreed 
had been accomplished, which was greater clarity about the truth of what took place. There wasn't some big kumbaya moment, everybody wept and forgave each other. It, that, that really didn't happen. There were, were some apologies. Uh, but basically what happened is the community now has a clear sense of what happened. And in an age of fake news where, where there's still so much being generated, it's just not so. Just knowing what actually happened is an important part of healing. That was one thing they were doing there. And another thing that I found really inspiring was that, that the African-American community, after years of being neglected in terms of the economy and in terms of investment, they decided they were going to start their own food cooperative in a neighborhood that is that has really lacked good access to fresh food. So they, they just are opening now, I believe, this Renaissance food co-op and one of the things I loved about it was the, the instead of calling it a membership, they were all of the people who were involved were called owners. And for a group of people who've been excluded from so much of the American economy to feel that they were part owners of this wonderful community resource that was going to make them healthy and be a gathering place and bring culturally relevant food into their community, for them to have that opportunity was, was really a big step for them. It- so... It's, it's, it's inspiring that it's sort of communal journalism. I mean, it's educating the public about, about facts. And, th- and this is something I've liked about Yes Magazine over the years. I think my, my favorite uh, pieces in Yes Magazine have been uh, collections of public opinion polls uh, informing people with progressive views that they're actually a majority <laughs> because you have the, the, the media pushing a different story and dismissing people as fringe uh, and and a majority of Americans I think on a lot of issues sharing opinions but thinking of themselves as a tiny minority when they aren't uh, it seems very valuable to me um, what what are your thoughts on, on that uh, the importance of people knowing their own numbers yeah I mean the, the downside of that is that we have to rely on polls that are already being taken by someone else so if they don't think to ask the question we don't have we don't create our own polls unfortunately we don't have to well, well you can it costs money but you yeah. you know you can so but we do we do dig deep at times dig deep into the polling data and look for things that aren't being well reported and and a couple of the things that I've found really striking one is that a majority of Americans have been supporting single payer health care. Right. Even at a time when none of the political leaders were willing to talk about it, except, you know, more recently Bernie Sanders was, but even before he was bringing that up, a majority of Americans were supporting single-payer health care. So that was one really striking fact that we uncovered. Another is that close to 90% of Americans favor a big investment in renewable energy. So Americans may disagree and are on the question of climate change, which is very unfortunate because the science is so clear on that. But leaving that aside, whether or not Americans can agree on the science of climate change, they do agree that we should be investing in renewable energy. There's so many good reasons for doing that. And that agreement of almost 90% of Americans cross political lines. Maybe not quite as many Republicans as Democrats want to see that, but a majority do. So yeah. there are these great policies out there that our political leaders have yet to to really embrace, um, with again with some notable exceptions. Yeah, and yet and yet Americans are all about those things. 
There's there yeah you've you've had great collections of these uh, facts in your magazine. Um the the there's a, a polling company out of University of Maryland called Pipa that that you know sort of informs people of basic information and then asks them questions. So it tells them what the federal budget is and then asks them what they would do with it because people actually have no idea how much money goes to what. Uh, and the result is that majority of Americans want to take huge amounts of money out of the military and put huge amounts of money into useful things like environmental protection. Uh, and, you know, which brings me to sort of my central concern about the shortcomings of local activism or not-in-my-backyard activism, despite its enormous strengths. Uh, and uh, that is that the U.S. government is is primarily a war-making, weapons-dealing machine. Uh, and from the point of view of communities in the United States, uh, that's seen as, uh, as jobs, uh, even though that's false, even though you'd have more jobs and a better economy uh, spending the money in any other way or even not taxing it in the first place. It's, it's perceived as jobs, and the destruction is largely elsewhere. Um, how how do we build from local activism dealing with local issues uh, to some sort of movement that can reduce the risk of nuclear apocalypse? Yeah, I think I think it's an important question, and the the work that's happening locally can do so much in its own local community, but then it it ultimately people ultimately have to join forces to get some bigger things done. Um, and that's one of the, the lessons, I think, of Standing Rock, is Standing Rock began as a local, very local effort. Yeah. And with a group of young people who said, you know, we're, not, we're just not going to see this happen in our community. And then they brought in, or they called for, for support, and tribes from all over the country came, and all over the world, and then they, a lot of non-tribal folks came, and so it built and it built into something that is now helping pipeline efforts, pi- people who are trying to block pipeline efforts, uh, uh, pipeline, pup- <coughs> let me try that one again. Sure. <laughs> it's now building a movement that's also helping other people who are trying to block pipelines in their own communities. And that that's challenging the fossil fuel model, which is to continue to build these uh, this fossil fuel infrastructure at a time when we need to be doing the opposite taking that infrastructure apart and switching to renewables. So movements do often start locally and build globally. So I think on the question of peace and war, part of the question is how how do you understand that question from the perspective of people in their local communities? And one way to understand it is through what you just mentioned, the tax system. How much of our money is going to support that military-industrial complex? How many Americans want to be helping to support sales, arms sales to Saudi Arabia, you know, if that if the word gets out how many Americans would really want to support that. They were very clever, the Congress, in terms of, of distributing the, um, the, the largesse from the military-industrial complex around different congressional districts to keep that kind of a, of a political support happening, and that's really tough to, to take apart. But I want to also just suggest one, one answer that goes one level deeper which is that, that our culture now is built on the notion that, that happiness comes from how much we consume. And in order to consume a lot of stuff, we have to get that stuff from somewhere. 
And for years, that somewhere, a lot of it has been from other countries, whether that's low cost for their natural resources or low cost for their labor. And they have not been benefiting in many cases from that appropriation, that extraction of their wealth for our consumerism. So one of the things that I was looking for as I was traveling for this book was, is there a different kind of value system emerging in communities? When people spend time with each other and start looking at what what's really valuable in life, time with friends and family and and drinking water and clean air and a good good education system, when they start looking at those things, I think they get less attached to the notion that, that it's all about consumerism. It's all about me first. Yeah. And our military system has been to, in, in some respect, to enforce American access to the resources of the world. And if we can stop needing those resources so much, if we can start being more self-reliant, we can also quit using the military to enforce our access to other people's resources. Yes, indeed. I, I sometimes think of militarism as the neglected evil of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s three evils, but really materialism is the one that, that almost nobody wants to take on, uh, and, and we do have to address them together, uh, and together with racism. Um, one of the things that, that struck me in reading the different types of activism in the book was the seeming importance of of local banking and 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 credit unions and uh, the need to deal with where people are putting their money because you know we have people fighting pipelines whose retirement savings are invested in pipeline companies and we have teachers you know whose public retirement uh, pension funds are invested in weapons dealers so you know lots of future wars uh, need to guarantee their retirement security. Uh, how, how important do you think it is to get control of where our, our savings and our money uh, is flowing to? Oh I think it's huge. I think it's huge. I think the whole uh, campus effort to get campus endowments out of fossil fuels has been a really, really important and big effort. And now the defund DAPL, last I saw online, the number was 50 million has been, has been. That's wonderful. Yeah, divested from the banks that are funding DAPL, which is basically almost all the big banks, indirectly or directly. So people, and while people are doing that, they're also asking, well, where should I put my money instead? And their local credit union is a great option. Those, those are organizations that are investing back in the communities and, and keeping, for, for the most part, keeping the money out of the, the big Wall Street casino, you know, bet on whatever can make profits regardless of the damage kind of system. So that's great. But what we need even beyond that is we need more ways to invest in things that we really want to build, invest in our local communities, invest in worker co-ops, invest in renewables. And those systems still really aren't very robust. There's, there's a few of those, but, but I think that's where, you know, I was, I was one of the main things I was looking at as I was traveling was where is the local economy being rebuilt and, and, and what's working, what's getting in the way, and there are some really important examples of, of things that are working, and the, the funding is still a huge question. So the more that we can start rechanneling money out of those really destructive corporations and Wall Street banks and start reinvesting it in the things that we want, I think the, the faster this whole movement can take off. 
Yeah, and there are great examples in your book, uh, Sarah Van Gilder. What we have just a few minutes left. Can you can you just describe uh, briefly the, this uh, this program of restorative justice that seems to be spreading in uh, in Harrisonburg, Virginia, of all places? Yeah, Harrisonburg, Virginia, is the the location of the Eastern Mennonite University, which is one of the the hubs of the restorative justice movement. So the idea of restorative justice is that instead of thinking of every problem or conflict as a, or, or crime as, a, as something that deserves harsh punishment, you think of it as a, as, a, as a time when you need reconciliation. You need to make reparations for things that were done wrong, but then you also ultimately want to rebuild the community and rebuild the relationships. And this is especially important with young people because so many young people get into trouble, and, and if you start right away with harsh um, policies in schools and people getting expelled and so forth, you're basically setting young people on a track to wind up in juvenile detention and eventually prison. So it's really important to have this other set of tools to reconcile a, a student with their teacher or with their classmates or whatever the, the issue was. So this is taking off in a big way, and I went to Harrisonburg because I wanted to see what they were doing locally and found out that the police department actually is, is starting to get on board. They've started to realize, as, as police departments around the country are getting confronted by Black Lives Matter and by the uh, public that's really angry at how the police have been treating, especially people of color, they're starting to realize that their legitimacy requires them to have a different kind of relationship with their community. And that means as a starting point to talk to people with respect when they stop them on the street. And that, 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 that is part of the, the notion of restorative justice is simply to be respectful. Uh, and the second part of that is to say, you know, if, if a situation comes along that doesn't have to be treated as a, as a crime, doesn't have to be treated... Uh, through the court system, is there another alternative? And so they're bringing together a community of people who can work with somebody, for example, who embezzles some money from uh, their employer. Can they work with them on um, re- repaying what was stolen, but also getting them back on a better track so that they don't just have prison as an option? So it was very interesting to me to hear the police officer who I interviewed really talk about what that means to him and why he believes that's, a, that's an essential tool for a police department to have nowadays. And, and so if people want to try to uh, get this going in their community, they, they can read your book, obviously, contact Eastern Mennonite University. What, what else should they, uh, should they pursue? Well, another great organization that I recommend is the RJOY, which is Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth, which is started by Fania Davis, and has been doing some amazing work in the school system on, uh, as I was mentioning, on turning situations that could result in really harsh punishments into situations where young people could get the guidance they need to succeed. Very good uh, advice. Lots more of it in the book. The book is called The Revolution Where You Live, Stories from a 12,000-Mile Journey Through a New America. Might inspire you to take your own journey of that sort if you can manage it. Uh, Sarah Van Gelder is the author. She's also the co-founder and executive director at Yes Magazine, which you should check out uh, online or in hard copy. Sarah Van Gelder, thank you uh, for taking the trip, writing the book, and coming on Talk Nation Radio. Well, thank you so much for having me, David. 
This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. And here's a new one. Sign a petition to urge Congress to open an investigation into the impeachment of President Donald Trump at impeachdonaldtrumpnow.org. And go to davidswanson.org for answers to all the usual, isn't Mike Pence worse, what about the evil Russians, and so on and so forth, questions that will arise. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a non-profit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.